This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the 72 Summit Series is one of the most famous hockey battles of all time. But who managed to convince the Soviets to let it happen? Author and former Canadian ambassador Gary J. Smith recounts the behind-the-scenes work it took to create the hockey series and what it was like to negotiate with the Soviet Union. Volodymyr Zelensky and the people of Ukraine are Time Magazine's People of the Year. Democracy advocate and former judge Mikhailo Zernikov is live in Ukraine and he joins us with his thoughts on the decisions to have the boss of the country on the cover of the magazine, plus we play the new wave 80s music edition of Game Showy on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, it's been a very long time that I've wanted to have some fun here in this little segment um, for no reason other than a love affair. Not my love affair. A love affair from that guy on the West Coast who puts us on the radio every single night. And um, and that love affair is um, is uh, Brendan Kelly's love affair with New Wave, 80s New Wave music. So, BK, how is it that you fell in love with this, this music? And it's just like you just feel it or you're on a dance floor somewhere and you're like, this is me. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Go back to mid, early to mid 2000s. Now, we always do Psychedelic Sunday, which aired on a couple of chorus stations. Mm-hmm. Um, however, on the other chorus station in Toronto, they did Spirit of the Edge Sunday, which was the true innovators of new rock on CFNY 102.1 The Edge. And it was live to air from a couple of different places. But when I went to it, it was at a place called Velvet Underground. And it was, yeah, a live DJ. It was commercial free. It was like six hours of nonstop retro mixes from the early 1980s through to the about mid-1990s. And yeah, I fell in love with it and decided I wanted to do that too. And I started Mm -hmm. mixing New Wave myself. And so DJ BK began. He did. He had several right. names, but DJ BK. He did. Yeah, what are some of the other names? Settled on. Oh, there's DJ a, BK. There's a. Uh, there was. <laughs> started with DJ Gaelic, which was because is Irish. Yeah. Yeah. There was that one. And how long did that one stick for? That one lasted one show, and I was named by someone else, and they insisted upon putting that upon the poster, um, because DJ was, Gaelic. Yeah, because I was just coming in as as, as Brendan. Yeah, that's <laughs> that got to be a. I can see how that one gets misunderstood. Yeah. No, I didn't like it. I didn't like that. So, yeah. It's okay, and that was it? Yeah. Just DJ Gaelic, then DJ BK? Yeah, DJ BK. There was a bunch of different just random one-offs. So I'm thinking of changing yeah, DJ BK. I'm thinking of firing up the old New Wave mixer and changing the name again, too. So, oh, yeah. good, eh? Yeah. DJ New Name. I'll add it to the list. Nice. Awesome. Wonderful. Okay, well, it is with that in mind that we're going to play our favorite game. That's right, it's time for Game Showy! It's a game show on the radio, where we play for points that don't matter, but a lot of pride. Here's your host, Ryan O'Donnell! Why, thank you, Bob. Welcome to Game Showy! We are rewinding to the golden age of the 80s music new wave an all 80s new wave trivia showdown 
Here is how Game Shows works if you're new to the show. Our contestants, Shane Hewitt and Brendan Kelly, DJ BK, will pick a question and difficulty of said question. Today, we're playing for cheap beer because there is literally nothing that goes better with dancing to new wave music than cheap beer. Now, one cheap beer is going to be an easy question. Three would be a difficult question. If you get the answer, the question right, you hear this. However, if you get it wrong, it sounds like this. Um, by the sounds of it, no. Oh, Robert. That's Robert Smith and telling you no of the cure. New wave. Now, we have three categories to choose from for our questions today. We have new wave hits, bands, new wave, obviously, and also name that song. I'm going to give you some lyrics, and you're going to have to tell me what song those lyrics are from. Now, we also have a very special question, a question that is just for the shift heads, just for the listeners. It doesn't matter if our contestants know the answer or not. You need to text it in because you could be the game changer. And that is our very special text line special. Wow. It sounds like that. So when you hear that sound, that means it's time for us to to, uh, get the answers from the text line special. So it's hidden. One lucky contestant will stumble across it randomly and could win two cheap beers if the answer is correct. Mm. So if you can text in, get your phones ready, 877-399-9898. I'm going to ask the question now. Text in your answers because you could be the deal breaker on this uh, episode of Game Showy. That number once again, 877-399-9898. So, listeners, Shiftheads, I want you to name this song from these lyrics. Into shape, shape it up, get straight. The lyrics again, into shape, shape it up, get straight. Is that Whip It by Devo? Burning Down the House by The Talking Heads? 80s by Killing Joke? Or Shout by Tears for Fears? Text in your answers if you know it, and uh, you could be the deal breaker on the text line special. And that's all the rules. That's it. Let's do it. Those are the rules. Let's do it, says your host, Ryan O'Donnell. Into shape, shape it up, get straight. 877-399-9898. Who sang that song? You could help one of your favorite shift heads win the game. Bob? Thanks, Bob. All right. So last time, DJ BK won at the last what? second. No. Right? I'm Never. pretty sure you did. Never. Uh, did. You definitely did. Oh, yeah. It was the weather one. He's yeah. Okay. Coy. Coy. My brain's a little fried. I'm, uh, I'm worried Shane. about this one, though. I'm real worried. Oh, yeah. Sure. You well, are. when we did Shane, hockey, you... I lost, let's just say. <laughs> that's so that's true. And it was all that's guessing. True. So don't get don't be too confident. It could bite you in the butt. So, Shane, you do get to go first, though. So the categories okay. of question, new yeah. wave hits, new wave bands uh-huh. and name that song. Uh-huh. Where are we going? I'm going to go with uh, new wave hits first there, Ryan, for two yep. cheap beers. Ooh, two cheap beers. Okay. New Wave's popularity peaked in the mid-1980s. What was the top New Wave single that year on the Billboard Hot 100? Careless okay, Whisper we, by Wham. I have a question before you do it. Michael. I have a question. 
Okay. Yeah. Oh, no. You said uh, you said popularity peaked in the mid '80s, and then you said single yeah. that year. Which oh, year? Oh, sorry, 1985. About? Sorry, 1985. My bad. Right yes, in the middle. 1985. What was the top? Yeah, sorry. What was the top single of 1985 on the Billboard Hot 100? Was it "Careless Whisper" by Wham and George Michael? "Don't You Forget About Me" by Simple Minds, "Like a Virgin" Madonna, or "Take on Me" by Aha. Um, I think that with that one, Ryan, because it caused such a controversy, uh, people were offended for the very first time. I'm going with Madonna. The very first they were. They were offended for is, the very first time yeah. by oh, a music video. Big time. Big time. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Also, just the song is a giant innuendo. But uh, that is the correct answer. Yes. Who cheap beer for Shane? Upon release, Like a Virgin received pretty positive reviews from critics, but then it also was quite a controversial song. But it was topping the charts in Australia and Canada, reaching top 10 elsewhere, and it sold 6 million copies worldwide. Wow. There you go. Uh, Two cheap beers to start off Shane on the game, Joey. Madonna mm-hmm. would be offending them for years to come. So Yes, yeah. yes yeah. she was. Just getting started. Just getting started with that one there. Big um, time, literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go with, uh, okay, we'll go with bands for two to keep it tight. Keep bands it tight. for two. Okay. New Wave has some pretty excellent acts and bands. Here are four New Wave bands, Brendan. Which one of these is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right now? Ooh, Which one of these? Okay. Oh, only one of them is, okay? Is it New Order, Tears for Fears, Billy Idol, or the Talking Heads. Well, I do believe they should all be in there. However, yeah, me too. <laughs> however, going back, I believe it was 2002, and it was one of the first times the band had played together in so many years, and they literally—I don't say they despise each other. The band is okay with each other, but they all despise the singer David Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> and they did a performance of Psycho Killer that was one of the most awkward things I've ever seen in my life because you could just see the contempt coming out of all of them towards David Byrne. It was wild. It's the Talking Heads. The, yeah, w- well, yes. Uh, yes, that is the correct answer. <laughs> yes, 2002, they, they even got the year right. Uh, wow. They appeared, they got it. Uh, they're also probably the most acclaimed, yeah. critically acclaimed new wave band of all time with album after album getting uh, many uh, I have two questions about this. Stuff well, like that. I just want to say one thing. I should really, instead of playing Shane, I should be playing Alan Cross. You should have called Alan Cross, like, yeah. literally. Like, dude, oh. tied me. We're tied. Like, I yeah. know, but I'm going to be giving, like, on, on, I'm just gonna be giving ongoing history of new music length answers. <laughs> um... The uh, I have two things for this. First of all, Keskase, and the second, uh, the second question good. is of these BK of these artists, mm-hmm. New Order, Tears for Fears, Billy Idol, which which is number one to go in the Rock and Hole for a Hall of Fame next? Hmm. In your opinion, that's question. tough. I would probably say mm, I would go with maybe New Order. I think they've probably had it. In order or Tears for Fears? It's hard to say. They both had big singles, but uh, I think Blue it Monday. Billy Idol, eh? Well, Billy Idol's great, but I think he's a step down from the other two. Commercial success of Billy Idol versus the other two. Mm-hmm. Tears for Fears, probably more global success than New Order, but New Order, like, such incredible impact on mm-hmm. not only this, but dance. On dance, yeah. So, right? Anyway, I was just curious. Look at that. Let's move on. No, it's great. 
let's move on. Yes, so Shane, we're playing game showy trivia. New Wave mm-hmm. is the the uh, theme of this week's mm-hmm. episode. So our categories mm-hmm. are New Wave hits, New Wave bands, and name that New Wave song. Shane, you are next to pick. Well, I'm like this two points thing that's happening here, so I'm going to continue with name that song for two cheap beers, right? Well, uh, Shane, I'm sorry, you're actually not able to name that song because it's what? time for the listeners to do it I'm on the shift head special. Special. That's a different thing. Oh, With what? Wow. That's the sound of a brain cell dying. I said yeah. the shift head special, which is kind of the same thing as the text line special. Anyway, yeah, this is the, the, the question that I mentioned at the start of Game Showy that's for the listeners and the listeners only. I read some lyrics, I gave you some band options, and you need to tell me who which was the band that did it. So the lyrics were Into Shape, Shape It Up, Get Straight. The options Whip It by Devo, Burning Down the House by the Talking Heads. 80s by Killing Joke or Shout by Tears for Fears. And um, you, yeah, you guys were listening very well from Glennie, Denise, Kathy on the email, Nighthawk, Steve, Angel. Uh, yeah, you guys are right. Let's uh, crank it up and oh, whip it by Devo is the correct answer. You all texted in, not a single one incorrect. Everybody got that one. A huge song. Um, nobody really expected that one to be a hit, but uh, it just took off. It peaked at number 14, the Billboard uh, Hot 100, and uh, probably Devo's biggest song, ABK, I'd say. Oh, yeah, I'd say 100% biggest song, biggest commercial success for sure. Very nice. Well, Shane, you just got two cheap beers courtesy of the listeners. There you go. I uh, watched my buddy sing that at karaoke, and um, he uh, was like in the face of a VLT player and almost got punched in the mouth that night. It's great. Oh, it's a love good it. karaoke one, though, because it's more talky than anything. Yep. Yeah. Safe. And then you can kind of yeah. do like the great dab whip. Mm. You can have some fun with it. Yeah, there you go. Very good. BK, Brennan Kelly, you're okay. up next. Where are we going? Uh, I guess I'm going to have to go with uh, three. I'll go with bands Ooh. for three. Bands for three. This is a tough question, but if you know your new wave, you probably know the answer, okay? One of the most famous new wave bands of all time, certainly one of the most influential, once had a very different name than how we know them today. The band's original name was Angel and the Snake. What band changed their name from that? Was it Devo, Blondie, Susie and the Banshees, or The Police? Which one of those bands changed your name from Angel and the Snake? Well, the Angel, of course, being the lovely Debbie Harry. We're going to keep it in New York with this one and the CBGB bar. Blondie often yeah. played with the talking heads there. Yeah. This was like the original, actual new wave before the before the MTV uh, mm-hmm. The actual new wave of the like the Talking Heads and Blondie and bands like Television in New York, so yeah, it's Blondie, hundred percent. Blondie is correct, absolutely. Debbie Harry, no stranger to uh, getting catcalled, but the the story of how they came up with the name Blondie is that they were leaving a gig, and uh, a trucker drove by and catcalled her, called her Blondie, and the band was like, "Ew, gross!" And then also, hey, wait a minute. And that's how they got their name. Wild. Don't cat call though. That, that, that's awful, but still, crazy story. There you All go. Right. DJ BK jumping into the lead with five cheap beers. Shane right behind at four. You guys are both a little tipsy. So let's yeah. see. Uh, let's see who's uh, going to black out first. <laughs> well, I'm going to go uh, for hits, new wave hits, Ryan. 
and I've got to uh, keep the pressure on here with three cheap beers. Three cheap beers. Okay. Shane, remember how much fun collecting vinyl was? How much fun that is? Still is. I mean, uh, it still is. But today people up? buy... <laughs> it did, yes, takes up space. But people buy full records, but nobody buys singles anymore. That's the thing that never really came back. However, New Wave, the genre, holds the record for the best-selling single vinyl ever. What record, what song holds that title? Is it Heart of Glass by Blondie, Blue Monday by New Order, Psycho Killer by The Talking Heads, or Take On Me by AHA? Well, this one, Ryan, I happen to know because it is it is my favorite of all of the dance songs of all of the time. Ever. Ever. Now, I kind of like the 88 version better. Don't tell anybody of the true fans because it's not quite so long. Good but the answer, my friend, is New Order Blue Monday. Doom, 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 doom. That is correct. Yes, the best-selling 12-inch single of all time. Millions of copies uh, from the 88 and the 95 re-releases. And uh, the song, I mean, this, is, this speaks for itself, but uh, BBC Radio 2 said that the song was a crucial link between 70s disco and dance house boom that took off in the end of the 80s. Yeah. New Order owned the Hacienda, the nightclub in Manchester, yeah. uh, which spawned the Acid House movement uh, came out of there. So, yeah, big pivotal. Oh, yeah. You know what also song did on vinyl? What? At uh, Ezzy's no, in Red Deer? No. no. You have to imagine like these old spotlights like moving around and all these lights and the smoke and the DJ way above the stage and Ryan's parents dancing while I was DJ. That's what happened to the song and then Ryan was born. Thank you, my creator. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. Okay. Well, there you go, Shane. Well done. You're uh, you're now sitting pretty at seven cheap beers. Shane right or uh, oh. Brendan right behind at five. Okay. Well, then I guess I have to go for the only big one remaining. Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Three? Name that okay. song. Name oh, that no. song. I know this is, you. We're know out of this time. One. This will be the really... last question. No pressure, by the way. Yeah. I I was I, I'm pretty sure Brendan knows this. I was kind of hoping Shane would get it. But Brendan got it first. So, Brendan, I'm going to read you some lyrics, and I need you to tell me the artist behind the lyrics. Okay. Okay? Yeah. I would go out tonight, but I haven't got a stitch to wear. Is that Love Song by The Cure, This Charming Man by The Smiths, Come On Eileen by Dex's Midnight Runners, or Brass in Pocket by The Pretenders? Uh, that would Are you be, Ryan O'Donnell or not? Because yeah. that's oh, yeah, that would be this. This charming is man by the Smiths. Uh, yeah. The Smiths. Now the Smiths technically are post-punk, post-punk or indie, early Brit pop. But I guess you could throw them into new wave if you wanted. Oh. Yeah, you could throw them in there. That's how I discovered yes. them. Was a new wave playlist on Spotify. Uh, Shane, that question you could have landed on that question too. So yeah, and just, you know, if you put. I could have, it's true. But could you get like a more predictable question than the only band that you like talk about every day? Uh, like next well, year, Spider Man jammies, your Smith's jammies are your favorite. 
I don't have Smith's jammies, but that sounds like a horrible Etsy creation that I could find for way too much money to ship from China. Uh. Their biggest single. How come you don't buzz that out? Come on, BK. Um, by the sounds of it, no. <laughs> oh, what was that? Aaron's buzzing <laughs> me out. Buzz. Yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> well, that's who we're excited about that game. one. Game Showy 80s New Wave, where BK takes the title Eight Cheap Beers, Shane Seven. And BK doesn't drink, so you know who's going to be the one who pukes on the side of your car when you leave with a bar on the way home and doesn't clean it up and it freezes and then you've got to wash it off with hot water the next day in the car wash. Um, by the sounds of it, no. <laughs> Remember to get your DJ spayed or neutered. This is the Shift Podcast. Hockey. Canada's game. Which technically on paper it's not, which is weird, but in my heart it is. Hockey over all the years is incredible. I, you know, my grandfather played Flim Flon Bombers. My dad managed Fort McMurray Barons. I played. My son plays. It's all the way through our lives. I remember... Um, when I met Tretiak for the first time, he was touring with a Russian junior hockey team. I don't know if I understood the magnitude other than there was this guy whose English was not great and he was rather daunting and looked particularly grumpy. And, um, but I knew his name and everybody wanted to talk to that guy. Hockey over the ages has told us some incredible stories and I would go as far as to say that hockey over all these decades has been a bit of a mirror to what is Canada? There's a gentleman who's joining us here on The Shift, and uh, his name is Gary J. Smith. He's a former career diplomat, Canadian ambassador who served at the Canadian Embassy in Moscow from 1971 to 1974. The ice war diplomat, uh, if you will. Hockey meets Cold War politics. Gary, thanks for being here. Great to be here with you, Shane. It's been a long time, but the stories are still, you know, the kind of stories for Canada where hockey fans stop and listen for these stories, Gary. They're magical. Well, there's a lot of stories to tell. And the beauty of this book, Ice War Diplomat, is that we go behind the scenes because this fabled hockey series, eight games, just didn't fall from the sky. There was a lot of work done on the political level. And a lot of hockey backup. You know, we couldn't have our best players play the best in the world, which were the Russians. But the Russians were categorized as amateurs. So, you know, we started out winning the Olympics and world championships in the 20s, 30s, 40s. But then in the 50s, 1952, the Olympics, the Edmonton Mercuries were the last Canadian team to win the Olympics. And then... In 1961, the Trail Smoke Eaters were the last team to win the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation World Championships. And the Russians kept winning and winning and winning. And we in Canada, who have hockey in our DNA, were getting more and more frustrated. Why can't we play our best? 
and the International Ice Hockey Federation, Bunny Ahern and uh, the International Olympic Committee said, no, 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 you guys are professionals. Those Russian Army players and Air Force players and police players, they're just amateurs. And so it can't happen. So we're trying to find a way around this problem. And when we uh, made a bit of forward progress in 1970 to get nine professionals on a team, they withdrew that. The International Olympic Committee said no. Uh, So they said you couldn't do that. And we decided, all right, we're out of international hockey. And that was 1970. So we had two years of talking and talking and talking and talking. And how are we going to get around this problem? And finally, once we got some political contact at the highest levels in the Soviet Union, and we can talk about that, we were able to negotiate an agreement to have an eight-game series, four in Canada, four in the Soviet Union, and it would just be bilateral, no tournament of any kind, and there'd be no trophy at the end of it. It would just be bragging rights, and that's what was set up for September 1972. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and I do have so many, you've already inspired so many questions. Um, in all of this, j- just to begin from from what you share. So Gary, when you, when you look at all this, I mean, the first place that I go um, is take us back to what it was like to communicate to get these things done. Because as a diplomat, like you must look at the world today with this old season of your life. Getting to Moscow was not easy. It's not like you could just fly you know, Vancouver direct and communicating with, you know, your home country of Canada was not easy uh, at the time. And then communicating inside Moscow, it's not like you could just Google it. So today's world is completely different. What this is like at the beginning of the seventies, when you were trying to do that, uh, slower patience, finding your way through all of that. It must've been so difficult. Help us get a bit of a picture of what that looked like meeting the people and trying to just get the conversation going? Well, you know, part of the problem uh, in Russia or the Soviet Union is they're afraid of foreigners and they're really afraid of each other. They've had uh, authoritarian leadership from the get-go all the way back to Ivan the Terrible through all the czars, then the communists, particularly Stalin, and now we're back at it with uh, Putin that people are intimidated. They don't want to say anything. And there's a a famous story I always like to tell about Ivan the Terrible wearing a black outfit, riding a black horse with a severed wolf's uh, head. And he rides into a village with uh, his mates, the secret police mates, and intimidate everybody. And as they're leaving, they're told, every whisper reaches the czar. And so when you think about that, if I, if I issue a whisper or I say something, it's going to get to the czar. The lesson I learn is I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And so that's the environment in which you go to when you went into the Soviet Union. Uh, they're afraid of each other. They're afraid of the government. And they're particularly afraid of foreigners because foreigners were invading the Soviet Union or Russia for decades and decades and indeed centuries, you know, back to Genghis Khan and Tamerlane and Teutonic Knights and Swedes and Poles. And Napoleon, 
and the Kaiser in the First World War, and then, of course, Hitler in the Second World War. So they're used to being overrun and uh, murdered and killed and buildings blown up. So they don't trust foreigners. So here I am. I show up. I represent NATO, a NATO country. Uh, I had been taught Russian, and they're suspicious. So you always had to try and establish trust, be open, Speaking Russian was enormously helpful. You know, if you can speak the language of the country in which you were operating, it's a huge bonus. And so I had that. I could read the newspapers. I could talk to people. But they they were reluctant to talk to foreigners on the streets and elsewhere. And you know what? The Soviet security were always on your uh, tail. Um, My apartment was bugged. The bedroom was bugged. Uh, the office was bugged. Uh, your car could be bugged. They uh, would come at you with um, uh, try to get you to go get on the black market with currency, or they would send uh, swallows or ravens at you. These are uh, young sex workers basically working for the KGB and trying and trap you in a honey pot, or they would come at you with a Romeo agent, somebody uh, intended the for you to fall in love with and give away the secrets. So it was tough. Soviet Union at the time was, um, had been decimated by Hitler. There were tons of women, very few men around. They didn't have a lot. Uh, the old housing was destroyed. So they went into these apartment buildings, very few cars and very few amenities of life. And that's what it was like in uh, the early seventies when I first showed up in Moscow. So contrast that to Canada in the 70s. Canada was starting to grow, um, you know, politically, obviously coming out of the, the rebelliousness of the, um, of the late 60s and the psychedelia and, and the wars over in Asia and all those things. Hockey really is a landing safe place. It starts to, you start to get it, I think, right? The international relations were terrible in general, you know, um, and and was did hockey become that safe place where where countries could could start the conversation uh absolutely because when you look at a a foreign country like uh, the soviet union you know we had uh ten thousand soldiers and airmen in europe uh facing off against the uh, the russians there were about a million soldiers altogether there from the warsaw pact and nato so missiles and fighter aircraft uh they were adversaries so what what you try to do uh to prevent another war or a nuclear war because um, students of history will recall that the cuban missile crisis of the autumn of 1962 we came close to a nuclear war uh, between the united states and the soviet union so when you get a guy like pierre elliott trudeau who's a bit of a maverick uh, and he's looking to open up some breathing room. Though that's the words, the words he used. Breathing room from the United States. He starts thinking about China, bringing Mao Zedong in from the cold. And how can you re- reduce the tension with the Soviets? So you need to find some common ground. That's what we call it, common ground. And we had exchanges. You know, you have trade and industrial agreements and so on. But people to people is what uh, really works. And we had exchanges of science, scientists and educators and dancers and musicians. 
But you need to find something that is broad and deep, that has wide appeal. And that's where hockey came into play between Canada and the Soviet Union. So when Pierre Elliott Trudeau went to Moscow in May of 1971, he went for 12 days, and that was the first time that a Canadian prime minister had ever gone there. And they were happy to receive him. They saw in Canada a counterweight to the United States, also a place to get some uh, high technology, you know, and uh, auto sector, power generation, uh, pulp and paper, and so on. So they were keen to encounter him. And that's when we got uh, the ability to reach up to the top level in the Soviet Union, try to get a green light for hockey to partly overcome the, uh, the problem we discussed earlier about amateur status. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Uh, the Soviet premier came back to Canada very quickly, and he was greeted with protests right across Canada. Uh, he just got to Ottawa, and somebody, a uh, Hungarian-Canadian, jumped on his back, and one ro- uh, reporter said, uh, the protester rode Kusigan like a horse. And there were two, three, four thousand uh, demonstrators in the streets of Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, and so on. And it was only when he got to Vancouver, um, we had penned in a, uh, a hockey game here. And he didn't want to go to it. He was lying on his hotel uh, bed saying, no, I, I can't face any more protests. Uh, it's too much. And Paul Martin Sr. and Arthur Lang were the two uh, federal uh, escort ministers, and they said, I come on to the game. I think you're going to find a different uh, reaction. And sure enough, uh, Alexei Kosygin comes to the uh, arena in Vancouver, goes down to center ice. He's received uh, very warmly by the crowd. Soviet flag flies for the first time over an NHL arena. And the two captains, Orlin Kurtenbach of the Canucks, Henri Richard of the Montreal Canadiens, present him with hockey sticks. He gives them uh, tie clips and uh, cufflinks. But the light went on for him uh, that night. That was mid-October 1971, right here in Vancouver. And he sees the way to improve relations with Canada and with Canadians is through hockey. And... That started uh, the process working at the highest levels. Because as I say, we needed political agreement in the Soviet Union to get rolling on this. Because nothing ever happens there without the, uh, the, uh, the communist leadership. Wow. Okay, so there are two things happening. You obviously have the people on the ground that are seeing it as an example that this is working. Uh, this is the Ice War Diplomat book, by the way. Uh, Gary J. Smith is the voice that you're hearing. And you have these people in the trenches that are literally, you know, standing at the hockey rink. And then you've got these bosses, communist bosses. How do you get access to those guys, Gary? Because I'm assuming it's not like you, you know, just go knocking on the door and say, hey, got a minute, right? Like, I mean, this is pretty well protected stuff. And not to mention, uh, maybe this is a stereotype. I don't know. But I would imagine that back then in the early 70s to a communist leader, it's a pretty soft notion to say, how about you care about a hockey game with Canada? Well, don't forget that the Soviets loved hockey as well. And uh, for this series, by the way, there were we estimated 150 million Soviets who watched the series. Uh, oh, wow. Communist boss Leonid Brezhnev, he loved hockey. 
they had a good league. They only started to play uh, what we call Canadian hockey with a puck in 1946 after the war. Before that, and they still do today, played bandy, you know, with a ball and 11 players on a frozen soccer rink. So they came from a long way off. Uh, They have the same geography we do, you know, the same frozen lakes and rivers. And they started to play it and they loved it. So... How do you get access to the Kremlin? You know, it's not by me knocking on a door. You've got to go to the top. So this is where Pierre Trudeau going there. And I was with him. I uh, was a note taker and uh, escort officer and went into the Kremlin. And we uh, had meetings with Brezhnev and uh, meetings with Kosygin. And they talked about common elements, you know, what was going on in the war in Vietnam and how can we reduce tensions and why do we have all these troops uh, ready to shoot each other? So mm-hmm. you, you establish a relationship. And then once you do that, you say, well, let's get some agreements in place here. And one of the key ones from my point of view was uh, the general exchanges agreement because Soviets always like to work from documents. They just don't like oral stuff. So once it's down, then all the people down the line and in the trenches can refer to a document and say, yep, those guys at the top have agreed to this. And that's where we got a reference to uh, exchanges of sportsmen. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to think that all these things go on in the background um, just to get uh, some hockey games. And again, travel back then was not even easy, too, to do four and four. So how, how did the um, I mean logistics alone... I mean, today, Gary, you and I, we could call a company and say, by the way, I need to move 25 hockey players, five coaches, five support staff, and probably five diplomats, you know, 50 people call it. I got to move everybody from Moscow to Canada. Then I got to move a bunch of Canadians to Moscow. And uh, by the way, can you quote me on that? I mean, that stuff didn't happen back then. (laughs) Well, This is uh, the great difference between Canada and the Soviet Union. When the Soviet players came to Canada, and I was on the aircraft with them, uh, we were only 36 people. There were no wives, no girlfriends, no mothers, no fathers, no fans, just the players. And they came over to Canada, and we had four games, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver. However... When we went back to Moscow, the Soviets were desperate to get hard currency because they couldn't trade their ruble, that was their currency, couldn't trade it internationally. So they agreed to uh, allow Canadian fans to come. And they would pay in dollars. Uh, We worked out a deal with their uh, Aeroflot, their airline, and Intourist, their organization that dealt with foreigners. And initially, we had an agreement for 500 Canadian fans to come. And as soon as that went on sale in Canada through Air Canada's uh, wholesalers, it sold out right away. And we got another 500. So 1,000 were gone like that. And another 500. And soon we were up to 2,000. You know, you the price from Toronto or Vancouver, I think if uh, I recall correctly, was something like, and that was airfare returned from Vancouver, Toronto to Moscow, 10 nights in the hotel, 
all your meals, four tickets to each of the four games in Moscow, tourism, uh, going to the ballet, going to the circus, and so on. And in addition to that, you could buy vodka for 90 cents a bottle. So <laughs> you know, the, the Canadian saw this as a, I call it the great Kupski special, you know. This is going to really be fun. But they, uh, people didn't really have an idea of, you know, this, this wasn't going down to Buffalo or Seattle. They're going in Moscow, and they had never had a crowd like that in Moscow before. Uh, that number of people for 10 days. And originally, the series, uh, you know, we mentioned that uh, there were four games in Canada in different cities. Originally, it was going to be in different cities in the Soviet Union, but they couldn't handle it. They didn't have the logistics. They didn't have the security uh, to go elsewhere. They were going to go to uh, St. Petersburg and Kiev and so on. So all the four games uh, ended up in Moscow. And when we were getting ready for this crowd, uh, we did an assessment that there'd be you know, 30, 35 Canadians arrested. And we realized that we were going to have to get some sort of understanding with the uh, Soviet police about this and what would be allowed and what wouldn't. And in the end, there was only one Canadian arrested, a uh, guy mm. called Pluff. He was a Canadian water ski champion. And he was uh, taken into jail for busting up a bar at 5 a.m. and uh, tackling a, a undercover police officer. <laughs> I've met a couple of pluffs. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> oh, man, this is absolutely fascinating. Ice War Diplomat, the stories go on and on and on. Um, today, Gary, you, you this week you saw the, the Canucks and the Canadians um, hockey today. The very first thing that was taken away from Russia with the current behavior uh, of international pol- geopolitics over there was sport. Uh, it is possible that Russian hockey players might not make it over for a couple of years, current players excluded. Um, you know, what, what's your what's your take on the temperature of things today and possibly the next few years of hockey plus geopolitical uh, look on what's been going on today? Does it bother you? Well, sure. Um, I referred to hockey uh, being a bridge between Canada and Russia, uh, referred to it in the book. And, you know, this is the 50th anniversary this year, uh, this past September. And there were plans uh, afoot to have Russian players come here and go across the country and Canadian players to go over there and banquets and festivities, uh, coins and stamps and so on. But all that uh, was muted uh, once uh, Putin invaded Ukraine on February 24. And all kinds of international tournaments were cancelled. They were supposed to hold the World Championships next spring in St. Petersburg. That was scrubbed. World Juniors, they were excluded from participating in this and that hockey tournament. So all we really have left at the moment are the 55, 56 Russian players in the NHL. And after some initial uh, unhappiness with, uh, you know, uh, Ovechkin and so on, uh, they're continuing to play. Uh, They're among the stars of the NHL these days. And particularly American teams, uh, continue to draft Russian players. If you looked at the draft this past summer, uh, they were picking Russian players. Uh, you know, we wondered about that. The, mm-hmm. I think any Canadian team picked a Russian player, but they're still playing. And you know what? Um, 
I think they uh, are transmission belts. That's one thing you need is uh, to be able to keep talking and to keep putting out what is the real truth because the players here know uh, what's happening and they're not going to listen to the propaganda that's coming out of the Kremlin. Well, and it does beg the question, who has the leverage? Obviously, there's the fear of family and loved ones that uh, overshadows from the government there. But truly, if a guy like Alexander Ovechkin um, took a stand against the government, I mean, that country would listen to him. And so he's got a balance, uh, not defending the guy or, or anything in any way, but he's got an awful lot of balance on a tightrope to take care of, as does uh, many other players in the NHL today. Um, what do you think of the game today after watching the Canadians and uh, Canucks the other night? Well, it's come a long way, eh? Sure is fast. <laughs> yeah, it's fast and the, uh, the entertainment, uh, the color, the advertising. I think that's a big difference going back to 72 uh, first of all, everybody's wearing a helmet now, which they didn't, and ads on the boards and ads on uniforms and so on. And uh, people realize this is entertainment, right? It's uh, where are you going to spend your entertainment dollar? And that's why they have so much going on. I, I was quite impressed with the food stalls uh, at the arena last night. Uh, numerous, very good quality, very good choice. Uh, the lighting, very good in the arena. Uh, we had good seats, mind you, but when you get a seven-six score, Montreal was up for nothing. My I know my friend, uh, the director of the film Icebreaker, which is based on on my book, he said for nothing, game's over. And I said, wait a minute, uh, don't you remember uh, Game Five in Moscow? Canada was up four to one with eleven minutes to go, and they scored four goals and won five four. He said, yeah, but that was then this is the Montreal Canadiens now. I said, well, let's see what happens. And the Canucks came back with five goals. And uh, then Montreal went ahead 6-5. Vancouver ties it up. And we go to overtime. And Peterson uh, uh, scores with 13 seconds, I think it was. And 7-6 yeah. uh, victory. But what it recalled for me, I, I mentioned Kosygin in Vancouver in 71, but... Don't forget that the fourth game of the series in Canada was played in Vancouver. And at that time, um, the Soviets had won the game in Montreal. Huge surprise. Team Canada won in Toronto. Uh, there was a draw in, in Winnipeg because there was no provision for overtime. Soviets came back twice from two-goal deficits. So Vancouver was the rubber match in Canada. And what happened was that a lot of the fans started to boo, boo Team Canada. And hmm. when the game was over, uh, they were booed off the ice because they were playing a rough game, took a lot of penalties, uh, couldn't score. And that's when Phil Esposito made that uh, famous speech that uh, he said, we don't deserve to be booed. We're doing our best uh, for Canada. We don't care about the money. And a lot of people said that was a speech that was like the Gettysburg Address, uh, a defining moment in, in Canadian uh, speech-making. And that, yeah, but- that was all in Vancouver. And others said, you know, when you boo your team, it's like booing your own army. Uh, so we go over to Moscow, and we've got these 2,700 fans, and they give the Canadian uh, team a standing ovation. And that turned, uh, I think, turned a lot of things around uh, showed that the country really was behind the team. 
and they went on, as we all know, to win the last three games all by one goal, all scored by a guy called uh, Paul Henderson, number 19, and he scored the final goal, winning goal, with 34 seconds to play. Well, hockey fans can be fickle. There's no denying that. The book, on the other hand, uh, is very deep. And the book tells many stories about things that went on in the background. Uh, my guest here is Gary J. Smith, Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics, 1972 Summit Series. And many of the stories that quietly went on in the background and all the hard work uh, that did. Let's just put it this way. It wasn't a WhatsApp chat that was done by Friday. It was uh, an awful lot of hard work put in by an awful lot of really, really hardworking and dedicated people to this country and to the sport, which is awesome. Gary, thank you so much for being generous with your time and sharing these stories. Very eloquent and colorful, and um, you really do give us the opportunity to go back and experience whether the stories are just stories to us because we weren't there or whether we lived in that season ourselves. Thank you so much, sir. I'm glad to be with you. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last uh, week or so, we have uh, had some trouble reaching our friends in, in Ukraine. There's um, there's a lot going on, and power has been a thing. Um, cell phone connectivity has been a thing. Well, we're connected now. Mikhail Zernikov joins us from Kiev, and uh, in conversation, uh, I'm really just looking forward to hearing your voice, Mikhail. Yes, we are. Hello. Hi, Shane. Hey, uh, thanks for good. having me. There you are. Um, I have to tell you, and I say this with the understanding that what I go through is nothing for what you go through, because I'm a million miles away, and it's not my country that I live in. It's not rockets landing in my neighborhood. It's none of those things. But um, I did reach out for the first time. I reached out to some other contacts when we hadn't heard back. Um, and mm -hmm. I said, Hey, have you been able to get a hold of, you know, people in Kiev in the last couple of days? Uh, just to, because I, you know, that sort of worry sets in. And, um, so I thought we would start the conversation there. Now, I don't mean to sound dramatic. I don't mean to make it something because everyone has been okay. Um, but it is interesting where your head kind of goes when you lose contact with people under these circumstances. That must be incredibly difficult for you with family and friends from different parts of Ukraine. Yeah, especially those on the front lines, uh, because the connection is, is bad there already, and it's getting better, you know, with the, with all the blackouts and all the strikes, uh, Russian strikes on, on our critical infrastructure, including the, you know, the, the electricity and the connections. So, um, yeah, people are worried, but at the same time, people are, you know, even more resilient and, uh, um, <laughs> there's, there's a running joke, uh, in Ukraine that, you know, we, when it ends, when we win, uh, then we'll all go camping with all these uh, amazing equipment like Starlinks and uh, power banks and everything, and and that's that's going to be one hell of a camping because you know everybody's everybody's <laughs> you know jacked on 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 all these uh, and you know piling up all this uh, all this amazing equipment that uh, supposed to keep us alive during the winter. Uh, so far, yeah. uh, you're right. So far, it's not it's not easy. Well, life is not easy anyway, uh, especially when you're, when you're under mis constant missile attacks. Um, but uh, so far, we're holding on. And the most recent attack, our, our anti-air um, anti 
you know, air defense uh, is getting better and better. So thank you for that, uh, our international partners. But also, uh, you know, the, the critical infrastructure is getting better at countering it. So it, it was not as, as bad as, as the previous one. So fingers crossed for the next, I mean, we would not like the next ones, but uh, they're probably coming. So, uh, of course, more aid is, is necessary, but, but we're also getting better at, at using it. Yeah, winter camping is probably not going to be a lot of fun after this winter, right? Like, there's not going to be anybody be like, hey, let's go recreationally stay in the cold after last winter, right? No, no, um, I, I'll, I, I, I guess you were this one. Yes, no, 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 probably not. I was talking about the summer ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Mikhailo is in Ukraine. Um, he's a former judge. He's a stand for developing what democracy looks like in Ukraine. That's what their organization does. Now, you talked about missile attacks landing. Uh, in Ukraine and how many of them are getting filtered out with air defenses, which is great news. But on the other end of it, um, it sounds like now Ukraine has not officially taken responsibility for it, but there are more and more explosions happening in Russia. It was a question we received here a couple of weeks ago on our text line, Mikhailo. And um, yeah. it was so- someone had said, like, why is it that they're not striking back? And uh, like outside of Ukraine and only defending their territory. And it was a bit of a principle at first. And then now the supply lines and and everything else has become, you know, really a target. But um, there are some uh, attacks that are happening back in Russia now with all the rockets that have landed on your city. uh, You know, Mm -hmm. it must feel pretty good to know that, you know, that you're the tools are now there to have an impact. Yeah, uh, well, Again, it's not. We can't know because there's no official confirmation. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's kind of bizarre that that we, again, it's a running joke, like a meme that you know the the Russian soldiers are basically smoking what they should not very much too often, so that, you know things explode. Um, so uh, you know, but seriously, of course, pro- probably we do have some means to do that, but uh, nearly not enough because we we are getting super creative like it's probably drones it's probably some other means of of attacking uh, russian infrastructure but but the general principle is military infrastructure of course because we're not terrorists unlike russia um but um uh, you know the 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 principle is the the, the you know it's better to not have the uh, attacks launching the the, the one the the, the the attack best averted is the one that did not happen. So, you know, we'd better strike the, the, the rockets where they are, the bases, so they don't even fly. Uh, and that's, that's what should happen. And that's, that's an absolutely legitimate uh, military uh, target, uh, according to international law, if uh, the country is attacking. Uh, so uh, we've been trying to get these, you know, thick rockets from the partners for months now, start, basically starting with, with the beginning of the war. And so far, we're not, uh, it looks like we're not uh, getting any effective means of, of targeting Russian uh, military, basically, terrorist uh, uh, infrastructure. So we, we definitely should, because, again, that's, that's millions, well, thousands, at least, of lives uh, saved uh, if, uh, if those rockets simply don't fly. But you ever get the feeling that when they say that, hey, by the way, we'll give you rockets, but we're going to restrict how far they go? Do you ever get the feeling that there's a bit of a wink to it? Like, hey, by the way, I know it only says you can select the distance of 50 miles, but if you actually turn it two clicks, it'll go as far as you need it to go. Like, you kind of get that feeling, like, publicly, uh, optically, 
they're saying one thing, but at the same time, these attacks are getting deeper and deeper inside Russia, right? The the counterattacks. And so, uh, you know, I mean, you kind of get the feeling like maybe they're like, yeah, by the way, it, it only says one click works, but if you turn it too, you're going to go as far as you like. Do you kind of get that feeling that the public narrative is a little bit different than what's actually happening with the weapons that are coming? Well, I'm not a military expert, so I can't, I can't even, uh, you know, I, I don't have enough information to even fantasize. So I, I, I'd rather pass on that. It's just uh, uh, my, my understanding is there will be m- many more, um, again, uh, targets, uh, military targets uh, that, that essentially are engaged in uh, um, terrorist attacks. Uh, because, again, uh, hitting civilian infrastructure, critical infrastructure is terrorism by international law. So... Um, there would be many more of that. It's just those are occasional ones. And that one, you know, the last one was like 600 or 700 kilometers away. So it's not, you know, it's it's way, way further than the, uh, you know, the, than the uh, SSAMC ro- rockets or missiles can, can, can reach. So that's, that was probably a drone. And those, you know, we're seeing attacks that are much closer, somewhere in the radius of like 60, 70 kilometers, which is officially, and that's recognized that we have those rockets, and not many are happening in this 300-kilometer radius should we have had those. Even though, you know, if there was a wink and like, oh, no, we don't have them, but those are happening, then it would be, I, I would agree, but, but so far it doesn't look like this. Your president, he looks handsome on the cover of Time magazine, Vladimir Zelensky, named Time Thank Person you. of the Year, along with all of the... Um, all of all of Ukrainians, but it is his face uh, that is on the cover of the magazine. What does that mean to everyday Ukrainians uh, sitting around having a coffee at work, finding their way through this? Well, it's proud that that's one, uh, you know, proud and happy because that's uh, first of all that that's uh, that's a good emotion to have during those uh, you know challenging times and, and cocktail of emotions that we're that we're having every day, um, and of course it's it also I, I like the how time framed it. It's not only President Zelensky, of course, of, wh- of whom we're very proud, uh, of whom we are very lucky to have uh, during these challenging times, but um, also it says the spirit of Ukraine. So it gives kind of a sense of, and I, I think it's 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 very very well done because it gives a sense of uh, unity because it it is it is both the president who who is the leader of the country and who 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 does amazing job in, in at, at 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 doing what what he's doing for for Ukraine to win but also it's it's the it's millions of of uh, other Ukrainians I don't want to call them ordinary because they're extraordinary because the, the things that they're doing are 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 again amazing uh so it's uh, you know the spirit of Ukraine is really is really also what is recognized and and I think it's beautiful so thank do you these for little that. things have an impact on yeah do these little things have an impact on the conversations when you know uh you've shared with us sort of a normal work day right and how you try to manage and mitigate fear um by allowing conversation to happen at the same time you know you try to get the work done through the course of the day yeah. and some days become more days of coworkers taking care of each other and other days are mm-hmm. or get work done little victories like this d- does that feed the the time at work where you know uh the momentum the positive attitude um is it these little these little things that really have the biggest impact on day to day try to support the economy in ukraine um try to stay positive of course you know you have to uh well we talked about this already that you have to um stay 
you have to have your normal life, right? And that, that includes work, that includes other, you know, achievements. And, and you know, you, you can't just freak out constantly for nine months. Then, then, you, then you're done in, in two weeks. And, I mean, you can't, you can't go along with, with, with that kind of attitude. So you, you have to, on one hand, kind of, be, quote unquote, be normal or live a normal life. On the other hand, like what's normal when you know missiles are falling on your head, uh, quite literally uh, sometimes. So um, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's both. Yeah, I'd have to say you have to have these these small wins and bigger wins in order to live through this because that gives you uh, more hope, that gives you more resolve, that gives you all all the necessary things to to just go through. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Uh, Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine, in Kiev, um, Mikhail Zernikov joins us here on the shift. Um, Christmas time. I'm not familiar, uh, and I, I have to say I am naive only because I've, I've never had a Ukrainian friend at Christmas. This is my first one. So, um, you're going to, uh, hold my hand and help me through what Christmas time in Ukraine looks like with the traditional Ukrainian Christmas, um, that aligns and, and what's a little bit different. So how, how do you prepare for that? You're in Manitoba. You don't have you don't have Ukrainian friends for Christmas. That's that's well, weird. I, well, no, but like legitimate, <laughs> like Ukraine. Yeah, like yeah, the, I, you're, you're like the organic Ukrainians, right? Okay, we got okay, lots of Ukrainians okay. around, just, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm just teasing you. Look, um, yeah, that's um, uh, that's. Um, and that's quite, you know, I thought about this today. It's, it's uh, you know, the sen- also the sense of unity, like the, the, the connection that we have, like the, 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 the lots of people that, the Ukrainian people that live there, or that, that at least have Ukrainian uh, heritage. That's, that's cool. Um, anyway, um, yeah, we're starting with just, again, you, you ask your friends, like, what, what are we doing for Christmas? Like, what are we doing for the New Year's? And uh, uh, on one hand, of course, you know, first of all, you don't want to spend much because that's, you know, a lot of your income just goes to, to the army. You just go, you, you just donate. You just, you just take. Another joke is like when you, previously, you, when you, when you like get tipsy and like you, 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 Tax your access, and now the Ukrainians now when when they, get, when they get tipsy, they go just donate into the army, and they're like the next day they go to your bank statement, and they go like, oh, oops, uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's done now. Um, so uh, yeah, you, you so that's because of you know there's not as as much money available, and it's of course you know when we know it's 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 better spent uh, elsewhere. AKA the army, uh, you don't you don't want to spend much on you know Christmas decorations or like renting a big house or whatever it is. Uh, so uh, it's it, it's gonna be like more more modest. We're gonna have a, a Christmas tree which is not which doesn't come from a local budget, but it comes from the um, from the businesses that chip in and, and just put the Christmas tree. Of course, there's, there's not gonna be like celebrations around, but there's gonna be a power outlets so people can come and charge their phones. Basically, with the with the Christmas tree, which is cool. So it's, oh, that it's, is cool. It's again, it's yeah, that's some it's some sort of a, some sort of a Christmas spirit still, but a little bit reduced, so we don't spend much. Yeah, and and the symbolism, of course, with power being um, so huge right now. Anyway, tell me about the food, Mikhailo. Tell me about the food at Christmas and Ukrainian food. My understanding, um, but I'm a rookie here, is that Ukrainian food at Christmas is like the best experience simplified maybe this year but what is your personal favorite christmas food um if you that you get excited about every year oh wow now you're, now you're getting you know my, my mouth water um well uh, 
that's there's a bunch of things uh, that that are traditional. Uh, you know, this borscht always, which is a, a problem number one, Ukrainian um, um, recognized thing, uh, which is now UNESCO heritage, by the way. Um, kudos to Yevhen Klopotenko, who is who is the you know very known Ukrainian chef and who basically led the the. Um, campaign of recognizing this as a UNESCO heritage. Uh, now, uh, you know, pierogi that you call them, we call them varenike. Um, yeah, yeah, right there. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, that's, it's, it's somehow sold. It's, it's still more like traditional in the other. It's like just more your European, even American, uh, uh, things like Turkey is, is a, is a more and more, um, you know, um, popular thing during Christmas to like winter times, be it, you know, Christmas or, or other uh, things. So it's, uh, I don't think it's too different from what you guys have, but then maybe I'm not so familiarized with, uh, with Canadian Christmas. Mm-hmm. We, we should, See? we should have more a change on that. Yeah. I'm your first Canadian Christmas buddy. See that? You're, I'm, you're there a rookie we go. Too, we just have, like me. We have to do this. Yes. Yes. All right. See? Okay. Now, um, I did have borscht this time or this summer. For the first time ever, I've had pierogi and all kinds of other things, but um, I, the uh, the borscht it was the first time I ever had it this summer. I have to tell you, it was very good. It was huh. very different, but it was very good. Very good, very good. Happy to yeah. happy to hear that. Yeah, learning. All right. Well, thank you, brother, for being here and sharing time with us. Uh, before we go, of course, uh, Canada's listening, my friend. What do you want as a Ukrainian? What do you want Canadians to know? Uh, thank you, Shane. Thank you, my friend. And um, um, well. Um, what, what, what do I want them to know? Well, that you, you caught me by best well. That's I, I won't be original. Listen, uh, more help to Ukraine. First of all, thank, thanks a lot for for all your help that you've done already. That's that change. They change things already, and that that keeps changing things. Be unoriginally send more uh, help, especially weapons lobby. Like ask your members of the parliament, your Congress people, your your whatever whatever it takes. Uh, just just send more support to ukraine uh help us win the war we will win it definitely but the more the, the more support we get the the more you know civilians and the, the more brave ukrainians um stay alive so uh with that uh, i again want to thank all the canadians and everybody who's listening thank you brother for uh for all this and thank you for uh for connecting with us i know it hasn't been easy and you uh it's so great to hear your voice appreciate you likewise thank you shane Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.